Mike Galaxy here with Verse Chorus Noise. On this installment, we bring to you California thrash metal band Metallica and their third studio release, Master of Puppets. Metallica returned to Sweet Silence Studios in Denmark to record Master of Puppets during the fall of 1985. Fleming Rasmussen once again produced. The album was released March 3, 1986 on Elektra and featured the now-classic Field of Crosses album artwork painted by Don Bradigam, known for his contributions to several Stephen King novels, as well as Motley Crue's Dr. Feelgood album art. Master of Puppets would peak at number 29 on the Billboard charts and go on to sell over 6 million copies in the U.S. alone, largely due to the success of the single and title track, Master of Puppets, which VH1 ranked as the third greatest heavy metal song ever. The album became the first thrash metal album to go platinum, and the first metal recording to be selected by the Library of Congress for preservation in the National Recording Registry. The tour would immediately follow the release on March 27th in Wichita, Kansas. Sadly, bassist and founding member Cliff Burton would lose his life just six months into this tour when the band's bus crashed during the European leg. Jason Newstead would fill in the spot and remain Metallica's bassist for the next 15 years. Electra Records A&R rep Michael Alago, who signed Metallica and John Lydon's post-Sex Pistols project Public Image Limited, would go on to discover White Zombie for Geffen Records, as well as executive produce the album Memphis Blues for Cyndi Lauper and even Nina Simone's 90s comeback recording A Single Woman. He would also be the subject of the 2017 Netflix documentary Who the Fuck is That Guy? The Fabulous Journey of Michael Alago. Alago also published three best-selling books on photography as well as his recently released autobiography, I Am Michael Alago, Breathing Music, Signing Metallica, Beating Death. I recently caught up with my friend Michael. Well, also, as a, as a young teenager in Brooklyn, we were mostly in Borough Park. Right down the block from us uh, was uh, Lamore, the rock club rock capital of you know new york um so at a very young age underage but a teenager i went to a lot of shows at lamore i would walk to lamore and i would crawl home drunk i saw a lot of bands there i saw metallica there for the very my very first time i saw wasp there i saw wendy o williams there armored saint Oh, God, there were so many great, great shows there. And it was like nothing inside. It was like a big box I, from what I can remember. Um, but, you know, all us young people were going there to hear all those what then were up-and-coming artists. Um, so it was like one of my favorite places to go to. And also, at a very early age, I heard music coming out of a storefront and it was heavy. And it was three guys with very long hair, which in 19, I don't know, like 71 or 72, that was uh, like that was like a, a little odd to me because I was probably 12 years old. And they, I later found out, were called Sir Lord Baltimore. Once they invited me in so I could hear the music. And um, I just thought, wow, this is so cool. And I think they were the first or one of the first musical groups that were deemed heavy metal. Uh, I loved CBGB. When I would take the train from Brooklyn as a, oh God, 15-year-old, 16-year-old, to get to the Bowery. The Bowery was dangerous. 
mid seventies. And you know, for some reason I had no fear. I just knew when I got off the train, I was heading to the to, uh, to the Bowery, and I was heading to I believe it was three fifteen Bowery CBGB, and you know CBGB wound up being my home away from home from nineteen seventy five seventy six when I saw um, Johnny Thunders and the Heartbreakers there. I saw the Dead Boys, the Ramones, uh, Talking Head, Patty Smith, Blondie. Um, and there was the British invasion that Eddie and the Hot Rods came to play and the Damned and Deaf School and Chelsea. And I just loved CBGB. And Hilly Crystal, the owner, had, knew a lot of us were underage. And he said, if I see you with alcohol, I'm throwing you out and you can't come back for two weeks. And we we loved that. So we chugged all our beer outside or and um, we just got to hear and see the most extraordinary punk artists back then. It was such a thriving musical haven. It was wild. I knew that I always wanted to do something in the music business from a very early age. I did not play an instrument, so I didn't know what that would be. I didn't know what I wanted to do, but it was going to be music. So fast forward to 1980. I am one year at School of Visual Arts and I'm working on Astor Place in a pharmacy. I was taking lunch one day. I was walking down East 11th Street. I saw a beautiful Art Deco building on the door. There was an eight by 10 piece of white paper and it said video club opening resumes wanted. So I just walked in and uh I was just looking around and a man in the balcony, I liken it to the Wizard of Oz. And the guy said, kid, what do you want? We're not open. I said, well, I read your sign that you're opening up a video club and I want a job. And he said, oh, really? Um, do you have a resume? And I said, a resume? I don't even know what a resume was. And for some reason, he thought that that was funny. And his name was Jerry Brandt. Jerry Brandt said to me, Come to my office, kid. I went up to his office and we started talking. We started talking about everything from the great American songbook from the 40s and 50s to what was happening in top 40 music and in the punk rock scene and at all the various nightclubs. He said to me, you know what? I'm going to give you a job here. You're going to open my mail. You're going to get my lunch and you're going to answer my phones. And I thought, oh, my I'm in the music business. And you know what? That really was the beginning of it all. You know, that also was the beginning, 1980, of the beginning of MTV. And if we fast forward it a little bit, I uh, started in 1983 at Electra, late 83 or mid 83. I had already seen Metallica once at Lamore in Brooklyn in 82. I had some business to take care of in 83 on the West Coast. Um, I was friends with a, a gentleman named Johnny Z, who had a little label called Megaforce Records. He signed them first uh, to Megaforce, along with Anthrax and Testament and Raven. But all they had was the money to make these records. They were truly a marvelous independent label. I had heard Kill Em All. I lost my mind. I had business to do, coincidentally, in San Francisco, and I knew they were playing The Stone. I went to The Stone to see them. It was extraordinary. 
You know, we talk about artists who have that it factor. It factor is a thing you cannot buy. You either have it, or I'm sorry to say, you don't. And um, they were extraordinary. And they all had that it factor. They were wildly charismatic on stage. You had never heard anything like that. Uh, 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 at least I didn't before. James Hetfield is a ringleader on stage. He knows how to whip the crowd into a frenzy. And, you know, that's what I'm talking about. That's what I want to be involved with. So when the show was over, I saw Lars came out from the... Um, uh, backstage and I gave him my business card and he said well you do know we're on a label and I said I do but um come hell or high water I want to work with you guys and so um take my card and please let's just try to keep in touch so you know they're doing their thing I go back to New York I'm doing my thing and at some point he calls me in the beginning of 1984 and he says you know Michael are you still interested in us and I said Absolutely. So um, John from Megaforce and I are talking back and forth. He wanted me to sign Raven, who are a power trio from England. Fabulous band. Love them to this day. They made great demos for me. But the problem was I heard Metallica. And at some point I had to tell Johnny Z, I don't want to sign Raven. I'm going to give you back your demo tapes and I want to sign Metallica. He was not very happy with me. I didn't blame him. So um, we start talking and I said, you know, we can do as a major label, we can do for them what you can't do at a totally independent label. And as great as the label is, we had the funds at, to do what needed to be done for somebody like them who I knew, I, honest to God, I knew from the get go they were going to be huge. So um Summer of 1984, there's a huge concert at Roseland. Metallica have been talk of the town for the last two years. Um, they're part of a mega force evening um, of Raven and Anthrax. They're in the middle slot. Uh, mostly everybody was sold out, over 3,500 kids there, young people. And um, when they came on, they, as they say, they ripped the proverbial roof off of Roseland and everybody was there to see them. It was an extraordinary night. And I say that it was a landmark night because that evening I went backstage. I, I was drunk. Of course, they all looked at me at like, wait a minute. We're going to hand our careers over to this person. And I probably had a plasmatics t-shirt on or a misfits t-shirt on. And Lars says, this is the guy. So they came to my office a day later and uh, we talked about signing to Electra. And uh, soon after that, a deal was struck um, with Megaforce and Electra. And, you know, everybody walked away financially satisfied. Having signed Metallica in summer of 84, uh, Ride the Lightning had just come out on Megaforce. And uh, it was in the middle of us signing them. And then once we did sign them, our version of Ride the Lightning came out in November of 1984. We put them on the road and gave them tour support for the next year. They were writing songs on the road. The songwriting got better and better from Kill Em All to Ride the Lightning. And now this new record, Master of Puppets. And uh, so I had that faith in them. 
Uh, they went back to uh, Sweet Silence Studios uh, with Fleming Rasmussen. Fleming was uh, family to them, and he was an extraordinary, and is an extraordinary engineer. They were always true to themselves and the fans. And I loved that the album opened up with Battery, which is one of their fastest songs uh, ever. Um, and then it goes right into the title track, Master of Puppets. Extraordinary, extraordinary song. And, uh, you know, of course, then uh, they were not big on ballads. And then comes the song Welcome Home Sanitarium, which, you know, this whole record put them over the top in the music industry with their fans and friends, with everyone. It really was a landmark metal record. Your show at Madison Square Garden, because, you know, of them being, not even mind, up and coming anymore, they were here. And it was an extraordinary evening. They opened up the show for Ozzy and... Um, it was one of the best shows ever. And ev all the kids, everybody just loved Metallica. A lot of stuff was going on at that point in time. They went on, the, they were on the road. I was making other records. I was interested in Jason Newstead's band from uh, Arizona called Flotsam and Jetsam. Okay. Now, um, so the band is on the road, and uh, it is now September of 1986, and on a Saturday morning, I get a very early phone call, which was unusual, from Cliff Bernstein, Q Prime Management. And uh, I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but he said, um, I have some bad news for you. Cliff Burton was killed last night when their bus skid in the middle of the evening, on a patch of what was called black ice, you know, which, you know, you can't see, but it is, you know, like very, very dangerous. The uh, tour bus turned over. Uh, Cliff fell out of his bunk and the bus actually killed him. So that was um, a very, very sad moment for the band for their friends and family, for the record company. And I was a mess. I was a mess. Because I, you know, those two or three years, I got very, very close with them. And um, they trusted me and I loved them. So, you know, at one point, you know, there's the funeral, the wake, everything. I went out for all of that in, in California. And, you know, all the local bands, that the thrash bands that they were friends with, you know, Testament and Exodus, and us, the East Coast guys, Anthrax, we were all at Cliff's wake. And we all went to his parents' home that afternoon and, you know, talked about Cliff. And um, so um, I go back home. They don't know, you know, everybody is, you know, they just lost their brother, their bandmate, they're young. They have all, I don't think they've ever experienced death on this kind of level. Um, so a couple weeks go by, they're quiet, uh, and my phone rings at my office and it's Lars. 
And he said, you know, Michael, we do want to move forward. And Cliff would want that. We want that. So we need some help. And I said, uh, funny enough, I do have a suggestion for you. His name is Jason Newstead. He's in a band I'm about to sign called Flotsam and Jetsam. And I do think he would be perfect. They interviewed uh, Jason. And you know what? He got the job. And uh, because they are still grieving at that early stage, they put Jason through the ringer. They tortured him. And they didn't really mean to, but these were young people still going through a grieving process, a serious, a heavy duty grieving process. And they took it all, they just happened to take it all out on Jason. Um, But he's a tough cookie. And uh, he wound up being with the band for the next, I think, 15 years. And that concludes this installment of Verse Chorus Noise. I want to thank Michael Alago for taking the time to share these amazing stories. But before we go, Michael, tell us a little bit about your book. My book is called I Am Michael Alago, Breathing Music, Signing Metallica, Beating Death. Uh, Funny enough, it came out this week, one year ago, in March of uh, 2020. Um, The book came about because the publishing company had seen my documentary on Netflix, Who the F is That Guy? The Fabulous Journey of Michael Alago. They wanted to know if I had more stories. And incredulously, I said, of course I have more stories. And that's how that book deal came to be. Um, You know, the book is about my 25 years as a music executive. It's also about um, alcoholism and uh, drug addiction, and it's about recovery. It is also about my favorite artists who I speak about in the book, from Patti Smith to Metallica to Nina Simone, John Lydon from the Sex Pistols. And it is a book about um, sobriety, and it's a book about gratitude, because that's how I currently live my life. In everything that I do, it's about gratitude. Thanks again, Michael, and thank you to all the listeners and supporters. See you next time. Thank you so much, and uh, keep in touch, please.